This is Chasing Encounters, a podcast about stories, languages, cultures, and identities. We highlight diversity and intersectionality in contemporary society through respectful and thought-provoking conversations. We have Marlon Valencia today in our show. Welcome, Marlon. Thank you very much, Jesit, for having me today. Uh, I'm honored and I'm always happy to see you. This is great. I met Marlon a while ago, I would say probably four or five years ago, here at OIC at the University of Toronto. I was a master's student and I met him just because he's also Colombian and I am Colombian. And in a sense, he became my my role model because I always wanted to be uh, like him in a sense that, that we have followed similar patterns throughout our lives. And, and I was like, oh man, this is a person I should look up to. And then this is a person I really admire because he was born in Colombia. He came to the United States and then later to Canada as well. So Marlon is a person who I really appreciate and I admire so much. And that's why I'm so glad to invite you in uh, this episode today. So Marlon, tell us a little bit about yourself, who you are, your family, your community. Well, thank you very much for that introduction. It's very flattering. Um, so um, who am I? In many ways, I think that we connected because we are very similar. We both come from a um, low socioeconomic background in Colombia, different cities. Just uh, is from Bogota, I'm from Cali. We both went to public schools, so we know what the system uh, is like. We are familiar with the public system, and uh, we also went to public universities, and then ended up uh, doing grad school in North America. So um, I, I must hi highlight that uh, from my background because uh, that has really influenced uh, my research interests and uh, what I do. So something that I always wanted to do as an educator was uh, I wanted to bring change uh, to my community. I wanted to inspire others. Uh, I wanted to um, become... Uh, someone who could allow uh, other uh, people from uh, a low socioeconomic background to uh, move forward and uh, look for other possibilities different to ones that were prescribed for us at that time. So one of the things that I remember when I was finishing um, elementary school was that it was like I had to go to this... Uh, um, schools to these public schools that would train me to become like uh, a mechanic or uh, that were highly specialized in uh, trades so that I could uh, find a job easily because that was what was meant to happen for people like us. I don't know if that was the same case for you. Yes, definitely. When I was in high school, I, re I do remember that um, by the end of grade nine, I was supposed to choose between a trade or an academic path. Uh, and it's interesting that uh, the, the trade was mainly a, about being a mechanic for men uh, or being a secretary for women. 
Yep. So, so we start uh, uh, seeing these patterns in education, at least in the early 80s, uh, early 90s, I would say as well. The idea that men are supposed to be mechanics or in those sorts of trades and women are supposed to be this, uh, uh, filling out those secretarial jobs. But like you were saying, I was not interested in neither of those. So I chose the academic path and then I, uh, for grades 10 and 11 in Colombia, um, I chose to learn languages. And then at that time, the options were English, uh, French, and German. So I decided to, to, to follow that path. And I started my first uh, encounters with French, German, and obviously English. Although I was learning English already since grade six. Well, same here. I, I, uh, I felt like I didn't fit into that uh, cookie-cutter approach to education. So uh, I ended up following an academic path, and I chose German as well. So uh, that inspired me to look for other possibilities. And for me, um, when I got into, like like when I got really serious about learning English, English for me represented uh, many possibilities. Like it allowed my imagination to run freely and uh, consider other possibilities like traveling abroad, speaking to other people uh, very different to the people that I knew around me. And, uh, and then when I, I was really into it, um, I told my mom that I wanted to go to a private school, a private language school, so that I could learn more English. And my mom was, uh, like we were living on a minimum... Uh, wage survivor's pension so and my my mother uh well she did everything she could to make sure that uh, we always had food on the table like for my brother and i we never missed a day of school or anything uh so i'm really grateful for her uh, and uh the other thing is that she always um she always supported me. So she said, yes, so we're going to make it happen. We're going to see how you're going to go into this language school. So back in the day, it was Colombo Americano in Cali. And that's where I started. And then when I met English teachers there, I noticed that they were very different to the high school teachers that I had met in um, my public school. Like they were really inspiring. They were fun. So I thought like, wow, I want to be an English teacher. I want to be like them. Uh, you know, uh, I understand Marlon 100% of what he's saying, and I understand also that that talking about these topics at some points it becomes a little bit emotional as well, uh, because as 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 he was talking, my mother also played a key role in education in myself and the idea of forging that future. And I relate to you about the idea of imagination, the idea of possibilities and the ideas of creating a better future for us. So in that sense, we both relate. And in a, in the same, in a similar way, I also wanted to be an English teacher because of this idea of being cool, being different. Um, so how was those first moments in which when you decided I want to be an English teacher? Well, first of all, I'd have to say that uh, it was, uh, you know, I'm an identity researcher, and I will perhaps expand a little bit more on that a bit later. But uh, for the time being, I want to emphasize that uh, 
being sent to this uh, private language school was not an easy thing for me because I was coming from a public school and uh, my mom was really working hard to uh, make sure I, I could go to school on Saturday mornings. Uh, but all of the other kids were not like me. They were coming from uh, middle and upper middle classes and uh, they all uh, were well-traveled and uh, had like a nice house with a swimming pool and things like that. So that was not um, uncommon for sure. Uh, so my interactions with them were at first really awkward because I felt like I didn't fit in there. So that was uh, something a bit challenging and uh, like the fact that I was coming from this uh, very uh, humble um, origin was a sort uh, a source of uh, shame for me uh, uh, back in the day because you know you're 11 you want to belong to a group of people you want you don't want to be uh, like the outcast or any of that and uh, so that there was uh, a struggle for sure and uh, but at the same time it was really stimulating because it was allowing me to see other things that maybe uh, many of my peers at the public school uh, were not exposed to right it's so interesting of course that that sometimes we have the feeling of not belonging and especially when when you share spaces with other people who have the means and the sources to survive in this planet, right? But um, I understand that you also went to public education, I mean, in, in an undergrad, and like me, that was the only means, right? Like I also wanted to be an English teacher, and the only possibility at that time was to get into... Um, undergrad education or post-secondary education in a public school in which uh, I didn't have to pay much money, but at least I, I, I got the education that I wanted at that time. I don't know how it was for you at that time when you wanted to get into undergrad education. Um, it, was, uh, it was really stimulating. Uh, like I remember the first class that I had in my... Um, teacher preparation program and we were trained to become uh, English as a foreign language teachers and uh, French as a foreign language teachers. So my first friend, my first French class was uh, completely in French and I had no French at all. So it was really pushing me to uh, work hard and uh, I, I got to learn a lot and I was really like I was like different like compared to my experience in high school i was really doing something that i wanted to do i didn't feel like i was doing what i was told to do and that made a difference uh, and of course uh tuition because i was coming from a, a public um, school was like i don't know back in the day it was like the equivalent of perhaps 20, 30 American dollars per semester. Mm -hmm. Yeah, likewise, I pay like probably a couple of dollars for the semester just for the, what they call it, insurance. And obviously that was only possible because in my case, I was coming from the very low socioeconomical status areas in Bogota. And at that time, um, 
the people who are coming from that uh, sort of background would not pay anything for the the, the, the degree, right? Like it's not like nowadays. It depends on uh, on where where you coming from that you would pay accordingly. Yep, that's right. Um, so um, then later on, I had the chance to when I was finishing my. Um, teacher preparation program, I had the chance to uh, go to Washington State uh, to uh, Spokane, Washington um, as a visiting professor uh, of Spanish, something that I had never done, uh, teach Spanish. Um, so um, I had the chance to uh, be there for a year, and it inspired me to uh, do a master's in uh, foreign languages and cultures at Washington State University. And then when I was finishing that, um, we had, my wife and I, we had this idea of uh, coming to Canada. And uh, that's when we decided to, uh, at the same time, apply for um, permanent residence and uh, also apply for a master's at um, York University. So this time um, I did a master's in applied linguistics and it was really eye-opening for me. So we came to Canada um, and I had the chance to uh, go back to my uh, English teaching roots. I, like I wasn't teaching Spanish anymore and I had the chance to reflect on many uh, things related to the teaching of English like the like colonialism, something I had never thought about, right. identities, not only uh, English learner, but also teacher identities. So it really got me thinking, and then language policy, and at the same time, there was something very interesting going on in Colombia. Uh, there was uh, this revamping of uh, Colombia's language policy for the teaching of foreign languages that back in the day was known as uh, bilingual uh, Colombia. And uh, it, like, I started reading about it, and this idea started, like, haunting me. Like, I would see it everywhere. Mm. And I thought, like, I, I really need to do some research on this. I need right. to learn more about it. Mm. And that's where my uh, 2013 paper uh, titled uh, Language Policy and the Manufacturing of uh, consent for foreign intervention in Colombia uh, came about. So I was looking at how language policy uh, could be used intentionally or unintentionally uh, to uh, fabricate this consent among uh, the general population that uh, once more public schools, the ones uh, that you and I right. came from were uh, insufficient to address the needs of uh, of Colombians, uh, especially when it comes to the uh, teaching of English. And I and I thought about my own experience learning uh, languages uh, at my public school, and and I thought like, how could this be? Like, how can this policy? Uh, promote um, some sort of equitable approach to the teaching of English when uh, private immersion schools are so well-resourced 
and public schools like some of them have like not even a boombox to mm-hmm. play uh, like mm-hmm. audio files so it was highly problematic so I thought like this is going to increase the gap between the rich and the poor and Colombia we must highlight that uh, is a a society that is highly stratified mm-hmm, with uh, a dwindling uh, middle class. So, yes, you know, as as you are talking, Marlon, it reminds me that you and I we follow similar journeys, going to the states, me going to Chicago and work as an English, uh, sorry, as a Spanish teacher, and you going to Washington State as well. As a, as a Spanish teacher, and I know there were some struggles because we were trained to teach English first, and then coming to the United States and teach Spanish is a little bit uh, out of our comfort zones. And then the step further is trying to look for other possibilities, going back to the idea of possibilities and futurities, moving to Canada as well. And little by little, we both are gaining these knowledges, right? A new I would say critical knowledge. So we don't look at our past with the same eyes. And I believe we start looking at Colombia with more a critical eye or critical lens in which we can actually do something about it. And that's when you actually decided to write this paper, looking at the policies, language policies, and questioning what's happening in Colombia, right? And it's something that I'm looking at at as well in my research right but um that's something that that interests me a lot in in the sense that we both and especially you as well looking at colombia and looking at the colombian problems and how it affects our families how it affects the people that we know right and especially now that we may want to move uh, move uh, towards the next topic or the or shift into a new topic of what's happening in colombia right now uh, which is the struggle uh, in, at the border in Venezuela. I don't know if you have any comments about what's happening now. Well, yes, absolutely. I've been following that uh, closely. So what I see is uh, a trend, and I would say that that Colombia is not the only place where this is happening. So what I see is that there's a progressive uh, erosion of democracy. Yes. Um and we can see that uh, here in Ontario, uh, in which uh, voters, um, I guess, these days we live in a world where we are so um, inundated yes, true, by true. information that some of the easiest ways to, uh, I guess, capture people's attention is uh, through the use of memes in uh, social media. And sometimes people do not verify sources. So for me, mm-hmm. uh, as a professor, and uh, I am a professor of uh, English as a second language, I shared in college, and I teach academic writing. I teach um, English language learners to write our argumentative essays. So we look at uh, different uh, fallacies in, in the mm-hmm. construction of uh, arguments and mm-hmm. I, I always uh, bring examples from um, from politicians because like 
what we see quite often is that they uh, say this is what we need to do to pass this law, hmm. but there's no substance in terms of uh, how well they're supporting that claim. Uh, and one of the things that we see uh, that uh, connects to that is uh, this whole idea that uh, Venezuela uh, needs uh, immediate um attention and uh, they throw words like uh, humanitarian and democracy uh, and I'm not saying that uh, Venezuelans are not suffering yes they are right. but we have to look at the broader context right. we have to look at what's actually going on cool. and we have to look at history and yeah. the involvement of uh, the US in different uh, the U.S. government in different uh, countries. And if we look at Chile, for example, in 1973, we see very similar patterns. Uh, and that one of them is uh, that um, those tactics of uh, blocking, the isolating the country uh, economically from the U.S. So just uh, think about a world. Uh, you wake up in the morning and you have no access to anything that comes from the U.S. Hmm. Think about uh, like, um, I don't know, toothpaste. Right. Uh, razor blade. Uh, soap, if you want to take a shower. Any type of hygiene product and wow. all of those things. Think about how your life would be without those things toilet paper right imagine milk <coughs> basic products i know because when i was in colombia recently to collect the data with my my participants and the community i work with you know you walk the streets of bogota you're in the buses and you hear these stories from immigrants of venezuela telling us all sorts of stories of what's happening in venezuela and it's unbelievable but like you said i believe um, it it is not as easy as we think it is. It is it is deeper than that and more complex. And and you're right. Like it, it is not only one thing, but many things happening at the same time in Venezuela. I cannot even understand what is working. But the way I see it, in a sense, is like people are suffering. People are having so many things over there. Like even dying, children dying. You know, it's 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 awful to see the. And hear the stories of Venezuela when I sit down in Colombia, uh, and to hear the stories is, is is heartbreaking. And I always wonder how how this how how was these things, right? It is heartbreaking, absolutely. But uh, if you th if you see it, and, and if you see what happened this week with the concert, the uh, Venezuela uh, Live Aid uh, concert, and. Uh, all of these trucks with uh, food and medicines and all that, like, mm -hmm. so that's supposed to like be like they're sending this to help Venezuelans, but the U.S. or anybody else wouldn't have to send any of this if they hadn't blocked their access to those goods in the first in place. the beginning, yes, right? Exactly. So uh, I'm by no means. Uh, suggesting that uh, they have uh, a good precedent. Well, Colombia doesn't have a good precedent either. 
Yes, exactly. That's a different topic, but yeah. <laughs> um, it is something else that is going on behind that. And you can see that uh, in in the history of the U.S. and the, the fact that they appointed uh, um, Elliot um, Abrams, uh, who has a history of uh, collaborating with uh, armed groups to... Uh, lead uh, uh, coup d'etat hmm. uh, in um, places like um, El Salvador, uh, Honduras, Guatemala. So uh, you get a, a sense of uh, something else going on there. So um, again, going back to the first topic about how uh, democracy is being eroded, what we see is that people are being Uh, told narratives about what's going on and they and quite often uh, people just accept the easiest narrative that fits in and in this case there's that narrative that uh, Nicolás Maduro is an evil dictator so yep that's the root of all problems easily solved that's it we need intervention and it's not like that it, there's much more going on and if we see uh the greatest complaint that colombians have about uh or many colombians at least hmm. yeah, about uh the colombian government getting so involved in this is that there are regions in colombia where people are dying and suffering and it's like those people are invisible why yeah. because they are minorities They are uh, marginalized by the government. Uh, and we see that in the northern part of Colombia, not so far from Venezuela, actually. Yeah. In La Guajira, uh, indigenous children die like every day uh, because they don't have water. Why? Because the water was used for mining. My God. Like coal mining. Yeah. <laughs> and there's... All of these transnational companies, um, some of them are Canadian. Imagine, oh my gosh. I was just, as, as, you're, as you're talking, I always think about how difficult it is to understand these, uh, these things, but also that sometimes I feel that my hands are tied. Like I cannot do anything about that, but just have these conversations with you, with friends, with people, sharing knowledges out there in the planet through these podcasts, for example, any other conversations via social media, etc. So I always keep thinking, how is that my role as a language educator and researcher is when it comes to these topics? So... Before actually wrapping up this uh, conversation with you, Marlon, I would like to ask this question. What would be these role or our roles, or in this case, your role as a language educator and researcher? How do we deal with these topics? Not necessarily the Colombian one, because this is not isolated. This happens everywhere. Like, you know, Brazil, here in Ontario, Brexit, right-wing ideologies around the world. How do we grapple with these things? And how do we work in our, um, in our educational environments? That's a very good question that we should definitely ask ourselves every day. So as I said before, I'm a professor of ESL at Sheridan College, um, and I teach academic writing. What I do 
in my classes is that I take uh, I take an approach that is inspired by the work of Jim Cummins. Um, so what he argues is that uh, you have to take the learning beyond the classroom and you have mm -hmm. to look at uh, power relations and what other things are affecting the learner and the teacher as persons. And you have to look at the socio-political context. So um, one of the things that I'm doing uh, in my uh, academic writing class is that I am taking a, a step further in terms of uh, helping students become more critical. So one of the requirements that they have uh, to write their argumentative essay is that they need to be critical of the sources that they cite. Yes. But I say, okay, let's go beyond that. So now we're looking at uh, why before uh, sharing something on social media, for example, you need to go and verify the sources. So we're taking those essay skills and we're uh, like, I'm trying to help my students understand that that's, those are skills that are not just needed for uh, writing an academic essay, but for life and for democracy. And, and we see how uh, people uh, talk so much about fake news these days, uh, but then um, they have to uh, actually go and see the source, uh, like where it comes from, uh, this information, uh, who wrote it, what biases this person might have, all of those things. And I also uh, have them just uh, in a different class that I teach, which is a listening um, and speaking class, uh, we have to um, analyze different lecture uh, patterns in terms of organization. So we listen to lectures and different topics, and then students are doing note-taking. So that is to help uh, students uh, become better note-takers so they can thrive in their... Uh, academic programs once they move out of the ESL uh, program. And one of the things that I recently did was uh, we had a lecture on acid rain. And acid rain? Yes. Okay. So, and uh, this, uh, like we looked at the impact uh, of this issue on the Great Lakes and uh, we looked at uh, the causes and what, what are the causes? Well, uh, using fossil fuels, right? So it's emissions. And what is the government doing for that? So one of the assignments that I gave them for extra credit was um, I had them read the, the Ontario government's uh, policy of uh, cap and trade, which if you're not familiar with that, uh, was a program that uh, was used to, uh, like the cap part, refers to uh, charging uh, carbon tax on uh, polluters. So if you buy a cell phone or if you buy uh, tires for your car, for example, then there's a tax that is charged because that's going to pollute, right? Yeah. And then that money gets uh, redistributed uh, if you do something that is better for the environment. So for instance, if you buy a programmable thermostat for your house, then you get a rebate right so that's something that the previous government put in place that this government is 
dismantling or pretty much killed since the very first day they walked in office. Um, and I had them read what the policy was and what the current government is doing. And after uh, studying this whole lecture on uh, pollution, I had them write letters expressing their opinion about ending the cap and trade program to the Minister of the Environment of Ontario. So those are things that we can do as professors in our nice. classrooms. And those are the things, going back to Colombia, those are the things that uh, the current government in Colombia doesn't want educators to do. To do. Because they are trying to pass legislation to uh, penalize any teacher that is discussing politics or anything that they see as objectionable or that will look bad at their government. Hmm. And that goes back to the erosion of democracy. Yes. We are, we are little by little, unfortunately, and I hope not becoming like a fascist on the rise, although I guess that's how it looks, right? But other than that, I think, um, according to what you just said, I do believe that whether it's Colombia or Brazil, Eastern Europe or Ontario, as researchers, professors, educators, using the academic skills for practical purposes, it's very important, number one, to create and generate critical consciousness for students out there to create the spaces or allow the, uh, and to create the spaces for students to have critical conversations as well. And of course, not accepting the narratives or the status quo that is being given for us easily, right? We need to dig deep into those conversations. And last but not least, I believe, take some kind of action. Like you said, a step further, go beyond that towards more personal and professional action uh, that we can see people who are out there suffering, you know, like making those changes. I think that's key. Okay, Marlon, thank you very much for coming today. Before we wrap up, I, I want to have a minute or so for you to tell us a little bit about uh, how we should end up this conversation today. Well, I guess uh, I would like to end this conversation by inviting everyone to stay strong, collaborate, to have these uh, courageous conversations everywhere because we as educators, uh, we must all work together to uh, try and, and facilitate uh, uh, reflection and different uh, ways of thinking uh, about how we can address uh, the issues that are impacting our uh, like changing world that is changing at such a fast pace that is really hard to keep up with. Uh, so if you have any um, comments or suggestions or ideas that you would like to share, then you know where to find just it. Or you. Yes. Marlon, I think this is a very thoughtful comment to finish today. Thank you very much for coming today to the podcast. Have a good rest of the week. Amazing. Thank you for having me. I'm truly honored. Thanks, everyone.